0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller, and as you likely know, I am privileged to serve as your host and moderator each week. We're well into our 150th episode, into our three years. Hard to believe that it's been over 150 interviews, some of the greatest names, celebrities, thought leaders, CEOs, authors that we've been able to feature here, both Franklin Covey thought leaders and individuals outside of our organization whose theme, whose point of view, whose life lessons and stories really resonates with all of our viewers and listeners. If you're not subscribing, we encourage you to visit FranklinCovey.com. Click on the On Leadership Podcast button and sign up for the weekly Tuesday morning newsletter. You're also welcome to subscribe to the podcast in audio format on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Today's guest Is a very interesting type of guest, no less seasoned, no less focused on the lessons that he's learned in his life and some of our major celebrities. But I picked this guest today because I think he is you and me. He is the every man, the every woman in terms of the struggles, the challenges, the fears that we face in our lives. All of us have different proclivities for our weaknesses. And before I introduce him, I wanted to let you know, I really think you should watch and listen to this entire podcast whether you're viewing it or you're listening to it on a podcast channel i think you'll find someone in your life that can relate to today's theme it might be someone who's struggling with an addiction or some substance abuse or perhaps they are using legal or illegal drugs in a way that is impacting their life they might have some mental health issues they might have some self-esteem or self-body image issues Perhaps it's someone in your life that's a a daughter or a son or a cousin. Perhaps it's a spouse, a parent, a neighbor. Perhaps it's you that's struggling and need some help. Today, I think you're going to find that Doug Bobst is going to provide you a remarkable level of insight. He is the host of the Adversity Advantage podcast. Doug, welcome to On Leadership.
1: Scott, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Doug, it's our honor today. You've written this book called From Felony to Fitness to Fire. It's a short but very endearing, vulnerable, raw and relatable recap of your journey from literally felon to kind of a fitness um, empire and how you are helping to inspire and coach and mentor people that have had a similar journey to yours. You're not a renowned name yet. Uh, Our podcast, hopefully, will uh, let a lot of people subscribe and listen to your podcast. You have a, um, a fitness coaching business, and you're a mentor and coach to many around the nation and world. We're going to talk about that today throughout our conversation. What I'd like to do, though, Doug, is maybe organize today's interview into four or five different tranches, different segments, and I'd like you first to talk a little bit about your early upbringing what that was like, I believe, up in the Maryland area with your parents and your siblings, and we'll get into some of the more, you might say, juicy parts of your journey as well. Give us kind of what it was like growing up as Doug.
1: Yeah, so I was raised um, by two parents, obviously, one of three boys in the greater Baltimore area, and what was unique about my story at the time was my parents got divorced when I was five years old, and and this was back in the early 90s where divorce wasn't nearly as common Is it is today, like divorce rates today, I think are, are a little over 50% or right around that mark. And, and back then I was the only kid out of the friends that I hung out with whose parents were, were separated. So we, my brothers and I were constantly bouncing from house to house, my parents split custody. So one day we were with our mom, the next day we were with our dad and so on and so forth. So I began to ask myself at a very young age, some, some questions like, what's wrong with me? Why is this happening? Um, Why am I different? Why aren't my parents getting along? Why aren't they talking to each other? And it slowly but surely, I think subconsciously started to build some some insecurities in me and different fears and different anxieties. And then on top of that, um, as I began to reach the age of like eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, I was the kid that always loved sports. I I watched sports, I played sports, I was emphatical about collecting baseball cards, that sort of thing. But the problem was, Scott, is I was as unathletic as they came. You know, I I could barely jump, I could barely run, I was uncoordinated, I was always the kid being cut from the, the travel teams and that sort of thing. So I began to question even more so, what's wrong with me? Why don't I fit in? Why aren't I making these teams? Am I good enough? All these questions that you hear a lot of people ask today. And back then, You know, I had no idea what kind of impact it was going to have in my life today. I didn't really think about it that way. I just knew in that moment I was upset. I started to get depressed and I started to self-medicate a little bit with food. I didn't really know what I was doing. I just knew that when I ate certain foods, it made me feel better, such as pasta, cinnamon buns, chips, cookies, you name it. I ate it. And I also didn't really eat that much more than say my friends did. Like when we were at our friends at my friend's house, like we were eating the same food, but I would just eat a little bit more. And I think my genetics probably played a role in it because I began to gain weight at a young age. I started to get a little bit of a gut when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And so what's that do? starts stacking even more insecurity, even more fear, even more like what's wrong with me? Why am I pudgier than other kids? Why am I having to wear husky pants? Why am I having to do this and that? So, as you can imagine, there's this like storm inside of me mentally and emotionally that is just waiting to erupt at the perfect moment. And I began to get picked on. I began to get bullied when I was in middle school and made fun of. I never had any luck with girls. I was always the kid that liked the, the pretty girl, but never uh, got a yes. And so I, I just really w- was struggling with myself. And, you know, I, I was looking for any way to escape I could. And it began with food, and then later on in my life, as I'm sure we'll talk about, it, it, it turned to other substances as well.
0: Doug, thank you for your vulnerability. You were featured in an interview on NBC's Today Show. I'm not sure if it was in that interview or perhaps you wrote about it in your book, but you spoke to the, the acrimony that existed between your mom and your father, and at some point their communication you know, broke down so much that they couldn't even be in the same room. They only you know, communicated through email. What advice would you give to parents right now that perhaps are experiencing trouble in their marriage, perhaps they are in the midst of a divorce or have gone through a divorce and they're finding the strife with their former spouse to be untenable and you want them to know the impact that that's having on their children. What advice will you give to parents who are finding it difficult to get along and what do you want them to know on what they should be doing differently?
1: You know, Scott, I I think what it comes down to is you got to check your ego and just do what's best for for your kids because I think at the end of the day that's what it's all about. Yes, we need to take care of ourselves in every situation. I'm not saying you don't. But remember like most people, most kids, they learn by by watching, not by listening, right? So they they learn and they learn and adapt to the behavior of your parents. Right. And like, I don't remember the exact age, but we're, we're finding out a lot, a lot now about mental health and caregiving and trauma that between certain ages is when kids learn their behavior patterns. They learn communication styles. They learn how to respond to emotions. And so if you're fighting and not talking in front of your kids throughout their childhood and you're not having you know adult conversations, they're going to think that's normal because that's all they're seeing. And so my advice would be to just do whatever it takes to communicate in a healthy way in front of your kids, do your best to, to kind of squash some of the resentments and anger and everything else that may have came out of the marriage and get into counseling, get into co-parenting therapy and and just really do what's right for the kids. Because at the end of the day, if you're trying to do what's best for them, what's best for them is to model healthy communication patterns and show them that. Um, they can have, you can have a healthy relationship despite not being married anymore.
0: Doug, beautifully said, you don't claim to be a mental health therapist or an addic- addictions expert other than you have expertise <laughs> uh, living through both of those challenges. Let's pivot now into what happened next. You, you're, you're now yeah. with your brothers, the, the victim, if you will, of a broken family with some acrimony and some unstableness there, for sure. You've got grandparents in your life. You have been self-soothing, self-medicating, as you call it, with... Um, Food and such. Your body image is quite poor. Talk about what happens next and maybe some description. Will you talk about the runway, if you will, in terms of the the substance abuse so that everyone who's listening can be aware of this as it relates to people in their lives and kind of know what to look for?
1: Yeah. And I think so one of the things I want to preface with is, as you alluded to, I wrote the book from felony to fitness to free. So I'm sure whether people are listening to this or watching this, they can probably tell that I've been incarcerated. And I never thought that when I first uh, did drugs that I would end up in jail. Nobody does. Nobody thinks that when I first I take that first hit or I do that first line that it's going to lead to me automatically going to jail. Right. Because if we did, most people probably wouldn't do it. And for me, One of my neighbors just happened to have some pot, and they were like, "Hey, you should try this." And I was like, "Oh, cool!" Like I I thought I saw all the cool kids or all the people that I wanted to fit in with in the crowd doing it, so I decided to try it. And I had no idea what what kind of feeling I was gonna have after I did it. I didn't know what exactly it was gonna do, but I remember taking that first hit off the marijuana pipe. And I felt this monkey come off my back, the monkey of shame, the monkey of fear, the monkey of anxiety. I didn't have to worry about whether girls were going to like me in the future. I didn't have to worry about what my parents' relationship was going to look like. I didn't have to worry if I was going to have success. And so, what ended up happening was I didn't just want to chase the high. That wasn't really what it is. It was, I wanted to chase that numbing feeling that the high gave me. So one hit led to two because as we know, we start to build a tolerance like anything else. We have to do more to get the same feeling. Doug, two how old like, were you? Pardon me, was, how, how old were you? I was, I was 14 years old.
0: Your, your first exposure to marijuana was when you were 14 and and who and how old was the person that shared it with you?
1: She was She was my age. She was a classmate okay. and we were friends. And so I, when I when she asked me if I wanted to do it, I was like, you know, sure. So I began smoking with just one hit, one hit led to two, led to three. And then it got to the point where I was smoking every day to support my habit. And it, it just, it's like a, a dog trying to chase its own tail. You're, you're constantly trying to chase the original high you got, and you never get it. So I began to smoke every day. And through that, I began to, to see like, wow, this is expensive. I can't afford to be spending 20, 30, 40 bucks a day or whatever it was back then, to support my daily pot habit. So I began to sell a little bit on the side. And as I began to sell a little bit on the side, my, my mom caught me several times and obviously put a strain in our relationship. And on my 16th birthday, she caught me selling a little bit of pot to my brother actually. And I was kicked out of my house when I was 16 and sent to go live with my dad. So now you can imagine even more insecurity, even more shame, more trauma, because my dad and I never really saw eye to eye. And, um, and so I, I took it as a huge slap in the face and was like, you know, what is wrong with me, my mom doesn't love me all these things, even though I had choices that played into that, right, I chose to respond to those circumstances with my behavior. And so I changed schools in 24 hours. In one day, I went from going to one school to a completely different school 30 minutes away where my dad lived. And I guess they thought that it would put me around different people, it would uh, exposed me to a different emir- environment. But really, because I had, you know, more insecurity and more, you know, shame and pain, I continued to use drugs, found other friends that were using drugs, and then barely graduated high school, because all my friends and I would do is ride around and get high together. That by the time I graduated high school, I began to experiment with other drugs, because the pot just wasn't doing it for me, you can always smoke so much before you just don't get high anymore. And I started experimenting with cocaine. Now, Cocaine made me feel really good because like I alluded to earlier, my self-esteem was shot. I I was depressed. I wasn't feeling good about myself. So when you do cocaine, you feel like you can accomplish anything. You feel like Superman. The other problem was, though, is that I had um, trouble with anxiety growing up, too. So cocaine and anxiety go about as well together as someone trying to lose weight and eating pizza every day. just doesn't work. But I developed a habit to that and addiction to the cocaine, and that led to me – doing upwards of like an eight ball coke a day. And then it hit a point where my anxiety was getting really bad. And also I had started to sell pot to make money. And because I realized that, wow, I have built these connections through the drug game. And I was selling two to three pounds of pot a week, which is probably about 10 grand. And I was at a point in my life where I was completely lost and hopeless. And I was just like, man, like, where's my life going? And I was fearful. And so my anxiety really started to take a toll on me. And I started experimenting, experiencing panic attacks. And it got so bad that I landed in the emergency room one night because I thought I was dying and having a heart attack because rightfully so I was smoking cigarettes. I was overweight. I was doing coke. I was smoking pot and I was just not taking care of myself. So I could have easily thought that I had a heart attack. Um, and And you were how old then, Doug? I'm like, I was about 18, Scott. Yeah, thank you so in that moment i was like gosh i really part of me was like you know i really need to change my life i need to make some different decisions because i'm bouncing from job to job i'm not happy with my life but i knew that i created and found this sense of community in my friend group that i never had with my family so i didn't want to leave my friends so i knew that i was like all right it's going to be really hard for me to form a new group of friends because my self-esteem was shot." So I need to do whatever I can to continue to hang out with this crowd and and smoke weed. Doug, let me me
0: interject a second. Sorry. Remarkably, though, you had graduated from high school because you actually had decent grades through all of this. You were fairly self-taught, and you were kind of one of those students that didn't have to work really hard. You were kind of naturally smart. So in lots of ways, you were kind of um, masking the, the pain because you were a fairly successful student in high school. You graduated even.
1: Yeah, I I was. And I that was part of what I was struggling with. I was like, you know, I was a smart kid. I got into some schools. Um, I wanted to be an accountant. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be an FBI agent. I had all these dreams and aspirations. So it wasn't like I was somebody that just knew that I was going to be a drug addict the rest of my life when I was in high school. Like, I honestly thought that I was going to have some success. And then, you know, fast forward to where I'm having all this anxiety. I think a lot of the anxiety stemmed from the fact that I had all this fear, all this self sabotage all this doubt about who I was becoming, because I thought that I had all this potential inside of me. And so one of my friends one day offered me a five milligram Percocet. And I took it again, because I wanted to to try anything that would help me escape. And the five milligram Percocet gave me that exact same feeling, Scott, that the first hit of, off the marijuana pipe gave me. So when I first took that, when I took the Percocet, I was about 19 years old. And then the five milligrams what it did for me is it allowed me to continue to hang out with my friends and do the drugs without having panic attacks. And so if my five milligram habit turned into 10 milligrams a day, 20 milligrams a day to 40, all the way up to where I was doing three, 400 milligrams a day to support my habit a day, spending hundreds of dollars a day on Oxycontin just to get high. And it got so bad that I didn't have a bowel movement for nearly a month. I have, I lost half my, uh, my left nostril and you know, my life just was slowly, slowly and quickly at the same time. I guess you could say, um, falling into the pits of of despair.
0: Doug, it's a remarkable journey. I want to take a moment and thank you again for your vulnerability. Th- this is a leadership competency. This is a 2020 skill set. Whether you are a parent or a friend or a leader in a company, perhaps not to confess, you know every nuance of some person's life. You came on today because. Um, I want you to be uh, transparent in your story, which I wanna thank you about. But I think the impact that you're having on countless people right now, as they're listening to your journey, that is the same journey of people in their lives right now that they might suspect, but don't know, the gift you are giving people right now is incalculable. Uh, I want you to continue, if you will, with the same level of transparency, because it gets worse. (laughs) And what gets worse is you now are in a car that you're driving, with a headlight out. Tell us why you're in that car. What is the purpose of that drive and what happens next?
1: Absolutely. And I guess before I say that, I mean, as you alluded to, this is a leadership conference or uh, leadership podcast, and you talk to a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs, that sort of thing. But I think behind most struggles with, with businesses, there's something personally going on. So I can't emphasize enough mastering your mental and emotional health First, And and having that as a foundation so that when professional and business problems do arise, you're able to handle it in a more effective way. So I all I cared about when I was doing and selling drugs were a few things who I was getting high with, how I was getting drugs, when I was doing them, uh, who I needed to manipulate, uh, where we were doing it, that sort of thing. It's all I cared about. So anything else didn't matter unless it was contributing to that. So I had a busted headlight, as you said a moment ago, that I had been meaning to fix for months and months and months. And you would think with a guy, for a guy who was selling drugs, doing drugs all day, every day in his car, you know, keeping his car protected from the police pulling me over should have been a top priority, but it wasn't. And Cinco de Mayo 2008, my friends and I were riding, were riding around to make a drug deal. I had a half a pound of pot in my trunk. I had a couple thousand dollars in cash in my car. And I was driving with the busted headlight and a cop was running radar because Cinco de Mayo obviously is one of the biggest party nights of the year, which I clearly wasn't thinking about. And I saw the cop. I flashed my high beams at him, thinking that would prevent him from pulling me over and seeing the busted headlight. And even though that gave him a reason to pull me over, because when you flash your high beams at somebody, it's normally letting them know that a cop is running radar. Right. And I think subconsciously I wanted to get caught. And here's why. He pulls me over and he could just tell we were up to nothing but good because he found an open container in the backseat of my car that my friend was drinking. And he, he asked me if he could search the car. And drug dealing 101 is when the police officer asks you if you can search your car, no matter what, you say no. And I said yes. So he pulls me out of the car, puts me in handcuffs, because when you tell somebody you can search your car, it's, there's reason to believe that there's illegal things in there. And he pops open my trunk, lifts up the spare tire, and finds the half a pound of pot. Goes into my glove box, finds the money. And my heart sank in the pit of my stomach, Scott. I thought my life was over. I was like, any dreams that I had of being an entrepreneur, being an accountant, or being an FBI agent, or being in a relationship, or whatever it was, in that moment felt like they were never going to happen. And I remember getting put in the back of the cop car and all I could think about is how did I get here? How did a kid who had these aspirations, who how did a kid who was so nice and kind, how did he how did he end up here? And I, I started. I don't know if anybody who's listening to this, watching this, has ever had those moments where you make a ton of bad choices and they start to add up and they stack up, and then all of a sudden it comes to a peak. And I was just remembering all the choices I made that led up to that moment. And I was hopeless. I was like, man, I don't know if I want to live anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Like, obviously, all these fears, um, you know, took over my mind and body. And I got taken to the detention center. And I was charged with a felony possession to intent possession with a to distribute marijuana.
0: Doug remind and, us your age there again.
1: Okay, I was tw- I was 20. Thank you. So Cinco de Mayo 20. Cinco de Mayo of 2008. I was 20 years old, and end up getting taken to jail. A few months later, It was September of 2008, and it was time for me to go to court uh, to get tried by the judge. And the judge looks at me, and he could tell that I was just this kid that was, I think, completely lost and just needed some help. And he said, listen, Doug, you're young, you're 20 years old, and this felony conviction could haunt you for the rest of your life. Because back in 2008, it was much more stigmatized than it is today. Pot was much more stigmatized. Drugs were much more stigmatized. And he said but i'm going to teach you a lesson but i think you're going to have to have some skin in the game too so he said to me i'm going to sentence you to the maximum sentence five years but i'm going to suspend everything but 90 days meaning i had to do the 90-day jail sentence and if i messed up um, in between then i would have to do i could potentially have to go back to court and be sentenced to the full five years gave me five years of probation 200 hours of community service all kinds of fines and drug classes but he said doug here's what i'm going to do for you if you complete everything without messing up, no missed probation appointments, no failed drug tests, you do your community service, you get through jail, you hold a job, you follow all the rules and regulations of parole and probation, I will take that felony conviction off your record at the end of the five years and give you a PBJ. And honestly, in the in court, I was 20 and I didn't, at that time, I, we had, I had buried several of my friends from drinking and driving and other substance related deaths. And I didn't think I was gonna live to see my 25th birthday. So I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll take the deal. Cause otherwise it was, I think it would have gone to trial or something. And then I probably would have been found guilty anyway, because they found everything they needed to find. And my, ju- the judge gave me a few weeks to, to gather my stuff. So this was September 30th, 2008. I reported to jail a week after my 21st birthday, which was October 21st, 2008. And as you can imagine, the moment I walked into the detention center to do my sentence had all kinds of fears, all kinds of worries, all kinds of shame, regrets, emotions, uh, leading up until that moment of my incarceration.
0: Doug, it's it's an amazing story. Uh, I'd like you to continue with the detail uh, about what the experience was like um, in jail, in terms of you kind of navigating the politics, the culture. I'd never been to jail. Talk about what that was like as a 20-year-old being in jail for 90 days and then midway through you met someone that Dr. Covey, who was our co-founder, he wrote the book The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Dr. Covey talks about the idea of a transition figure, someone in our lives that creates a pivot point for us, that in all of our lives we have a transition figure and in other people's lives we can become a transition figure. You met someone that became a transition figure in your life in prison. Talk about those 90 days.
1: Absolutely, Scott. I think so. When I walked into jail, I was completely a mess. And we have all these fears and there's all these stigmas we hear about, you know, with, with jail, like about you know certain things happening. And I, I just wanna say, like for the like for the most part, I think a lot of that isn't true, at least in my experience. I think in jail, just like life nobody's different you're not better than anyone and everyone's just trying to get to do their time and then get out and hopefully come out like a better person than when they left believe it or not so when i when i got there though i was facing an uphill battle because the last thing i did before i went to jail was i snorted a couple hundred a couple hundred milligrams of oxycontin so i still had this horrific drug addiction doug can i ask a question
0: so you know I've had OxyContin prescribed by a physician because of a bulging disc. It comes in a pill and a responsible user is very careful about it and you sometimes cut it in half. And you talked about how you hadn't had a bowel movement in a month and you'd, you know, damaged one of your nostrils. Why were you snorting it versus taking it as a pill like it's prescribed?
1: Because, so the ones I was taking were the, the brand name OxyContin. Um, so you they would have like an oc on one side and then like an 80 on the other, other side for the milligram and then they're the 40 milligram p- pills had the 40 on the, the side and so on and so forth and they were time released because they were meant for people that were experiencing I severe see. pain yeah right i see and so we would lick if you took it as prescribed with a time release it would be it was meant to slowly like go into your system throughout the course of eight hours four right. hours whatever it right. was i forget the exact time right. but if you lick the time release off and you crush it up and snort it, it gets into your body instantaneously. I see, so it's coated, the, rush the is pill is much- coated with yes. some
0: substance that allows it to dissolve over time in your bloodstream. And if you lick that off and then snort it, you get the full high of the eight hours immediately.
1: Yeah, and the reason people liked the brand name Oxycontin is because there was no filler. Like a lot of the ones that I think they prescribe today have acetaminophen in it, so it's a filler. I think yes. it's almost like a Tylenol, so if you were to right. snort it, it would just fill your nose up and you couldn't even get the the right high. because got it. It dilutes Thank you for clarifying. It. Of course. Thank you. So when I got to jail, the detox started and I did it for three weeks and it was almost, it was like having the worst case of the flu, the detox, uncontrollable bowel movements, vomiting, nausea, sleepless nights, depression, anxiety, pain. But the, the hardest thing for me at least was you, there, you, get, you get this feeling like you're trying to crawl out of your own skin. Which was incredibly hard. You have, you feel like you have all this nervous energy with nowhere to go constantly. At least that's how I felt. And I was, I was so down, man. I was mentally, emotionally, and spiritually broken. And my soon-to-be cellmate, as you you said a few minutes ago, got me to start exercising. And I think in life, you're right. We need these transition people because sometimes when you feel so down and out. And, I, and you have your head like face first in the mud and you can't see anything in front of you you have no hope when you have a mentor or an unsung hero or an angel like I had kind of pull your head up just a little bit just so you can see a little bit ahead of you and you see a little bit of light, it sometimes gets the ball rolling so that you can you know, continue to take one step forward and, um, and move on. And that's what Eric did for me. And I remember him saying to me, he's like, you're gonna work out with me when you get through your detox. And I was like, yeah, right, man. Have you seen me? Like at the time I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now and could have been a model for Pillsbury. So when he said those words to me, I was, there's no way. I was the most insecure, unconfident person. So for me to get down and, and work out in front of a bunch of grown men that I was kind of half terrified of just wasn't gonna happen. And then he started talking to me and he started asking me about my story and why I started using drugs and why I did this and why I did that. And the one thing that really was the, a turning point for me was, I realized I was being a victim to my circumstances. And not not that I wasn't a quote unquote victim, but the way I was handling it was, I was victimizing myself in the sense where I was blaming everybody for my problems. I was blaming my parents for my drug addiction. I was blaming the girls for rejecting me for my drug addiction. I was blaming being cut from the sport teams for my addiction. And and he pretty much said to me, he said, hey man, just quit, quit being a wuss. He's like, you got yourself here. He's like, there's plenty of people that went through what you went through and aren't in jail. You chose to get yourself here by the choices you made. And he's like, and if you're going to change and become a better person, a better man, whatever the case may be, it's on you to make those choices. And I felt empowered in that moment, Scott. It I wasn't what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear, it's okay, Doug, like poor you, but it's what I needed to hear. And it inspired me. I was like, all right, this guy obviously cares about me. He has, he has no skin in the game, really. Like, he's not a family member. He's not anyone who's close to me. So I decided to give exercise a try. And keep in mind, this guy, Eric, was like a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club, is how I like to describe him. Like he was doing thousands of push-ups, hundreds of pull-ups, running all these laps in the common area of jail. So when we we first started working out, jail when you were when you uh, where we worked out, it's like there's it's like a cafeteria style. Like there's it's a common area, there's different tables, people are playing cards, people are watching TV, people are doing their thing. And it's you're down on like a hard floor. And I remember getting down to do a push-up. He's like, get down to a push-up. And I thought I could at least do one, right? And I was like, I can do a push-up, you know? Couldn't do one, couldn't even do one for my knees, could barely walk up and down the stairs without huffing and puffing, because I was also smoking cigarettes. And with his motivation and encouragement training me in there every day, I was able to do a set of 10 push-ups and run a mile by the end of my 90-day sentence, which was ironically was the goal that we had set when I first started working out, I'd always wanted to be able to do a set of 10 pushups. It was something I could never do because of my weight, because of my self-confidence, because I just never was consistent. And a light bulb went off in my head and I was like, man, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna change. I'm gonna finally transform my life because I finally had the self-confidence I never had. I finally had self-esteem. I finally had developed some sort of discipline. I had gotten comfortable being uncomfortable. And most importantly, I started to actually believe in myself. And I think when anyone's trying to make any sort of change, I don't care if it's beating a drug addiction, I don't care if it's getting into a new relationship, starting a business, you have to believe in yourself, right? Because if you don't believe in yourself, like it's going to play out in some pretty negative ways. So at the end of my 90-day sentence, I literally felt like my life was completely changed. I was like, I'm never gonna do drugs again. I'm gonna lose all this weight and I'm gonna change.
0: But this, this incarceration was not a cakewalk. I mean, you write and <laughs> talk about, I mean, this was, you were in jail with, you know, people that had done some pretty severe things and you were concerned about, you know, the horrors you hear in jail. And this yeah. was not as if it was just 30 days at a country club. I mean, you were in jail, incarcerated with um, tough people.
1: Yeah, I was. And it, it was definitely scary. And it was definitely something that I I definitely had horrors of what was going to happen to a guy like me in there. Uh, And I also learned though, too, that, you know, people in there as scary as they might've been to me or everything else that I think everybody just wanted to do their time and get out. I think that's the goal of people who, when they get into detention centers, I'm sure there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of regret. There's a lot of like, why, why am I in here? And then the goal is to hopefully get out and not go back. But I yeah. think the problem is a lot of people might not take the time while they're in there to kind of reinvent themselves and work on how they're gonna to respond to stress, how they're gonna to respond to these emotions, how they're gonna to respond to anxiety and all these things that, that life will throw at you when you get out of jail. And that's why I think fitness was so pivotal for me and when I was incarcerated, it was because it built this runway of coping mechanisms for me to be able to handle when life through, hit me or threw curveballs at me when I got out. And one of the hardest things I think was definitely the food in jail. I mean, we would have these sandwiches for lunch called it was like sweaty meat. It was like this mystery bologna meat they would serve and peanut butter and jelly. And we would get these chicken dinners on Sunday, which was they were just super burnt, like rotisserie chicken. We had I mean, I had Thanksgiving in jail. Uh, Christmas. I got out the day after Christmas. Ironically, the, one of the, the funniest moments, I think, for me or one of the times I was like, man, what's going on is uh, like a church group, a Catholic church group, I think it was came in. And we went into this room, and they started singing Christmas carol. We sung. They started singing Christmas carols with us, and brought us some like milk and cookies. And I was like, "Man, what is, what's wrong with me? Like, what happened?" And it was definitely a turning point for me, a big turning point. And what I thought was going to be my greatest setback in life, my biggest form of adversity, actually became uh, a stepping stone for for a really great comeback. And I'm very blessed for what my cellmate did for me when I left. I he gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place today, so I never forget where I came from. And what's interesting is I cried when I walked into jail because I didn't want to go when I left. I cried because I didn't want to leave because this guy had just chosen to help me save my own life instead of really you know saving his own. And I asked him two things I said, you know, man, or I said, how can I ever repay you? And he shared with me a few things he said, don't mess up and pay it forward. And I'd never done any self-development work. I'd never been of service. I'd never read any kind of leadership book or anything that talked about what it meant to pay it forward or purpose. I was like, all right, man, whatever. Like, I'm just not gonna use drugs. I'm not gonna come back. And I did it, man. I haven't touched drugs since the day I was in jail.
0: Remarkable, and congratulations to you, Doug. You're uh, you're, uh, a, a vision of hope for millions of people watching and listening to this. Your last day of jail, your 90 days is up. You're handed this bag that are, and contains the clothes that you entered in. What yep. happens next?
1: So what happens next is I end up going and living with my, my grandparents because I couldn't live with my mom, couldn't live with my dad because I, you know, just obviously blown the relationships with them through the years. And my grandparents were like, we'll take you in. But under certain stipulations, we, we won't charge you rent. Uh, we won't charge you for food. We'll give you some spending money for things you want to do, but you have to bring us receipts. You have to keep your stuff straight. You got to exercise. You got to have a job or you're out. And it gave me the structure in a loving way that I never really had growing up. I mean, they, they, they showed me, okay, you can stay here, but there's some ground rules, but we're going to show you love along the way. And from that, I, I just took it and ran with it. I, I kept working out. I worked out every day. I followed the workout plan that, that Eric gave me. I lost a bunch of weight. And then I started to really, really feel not just the physical effects of of exercise. I mean, I know it gave me some of the, I saw some of the mental and emotional benefits when I was in jail, but I really was like, wow, I'm a completely different person. Like I don't even align with my old friends anymore. Like, and that's what happens, Scott, is when we make a, a, a change and we develop new healthy habits, some of the old people in our past, we just don't align with. And it's almost like awkward to have a conversation with, because for me, when I would go and I would hang around them, they would be wanting to go do drugs and, and party and i was like man like do you guys have like a, a health magazine i can read or i want to eat some chicken or whatever it was and i just felt like all right this is awkward it's just time to stop hanging out with them and then i started to develop other habits i started focusing on learning to cook and how i could nourish myself in a healthy way from a nutrition perspective because while i was on like a little bit of a diet when i was in jail to help me lose a little bit of weight i never understood the mental and emotional benefits of eating healthy foods and what that did for your energy, for your sleep and for your body and that sort of thing. And so once I got to a place fitness wise where I had lost 50 pounds, which was about, so I got out of jail in December. It was about a year, give, give or take a year or so later, I had lost the weight. Um, I decided I wanted to start to really pursue a uh, becoming a personal trainer to help other people pay it to help other people use fitness to change their lives in the same way fitness changed my lives and to actually get take the torch that Eric had given me and pay it forward um, to others. And, you know, this is a leadership pot- podcast. And so applying for a job as a convicted felon was incredibly hard at, at a local wellness center that I wanted to work at. I remember sitting there in an interview and them Asking me like about my background. And I I told my story. I said, fitness has changed my life. I've lost a bunch of weight. I want to help other people. And I left the jail part out because I was like, all right, I want to make sure that they like me before and revealing this. And they're like, all right, like, so when can you start? And I was like, well, there's one other thing. I'm like, I'm a convicted felon. And I was in jail. And that's where I started exercising. And it was like the the look on my my manager's face. I mean, it was just priceless. And I just said, listen, I'll do whatever it takes. I was like, I swear I will you know, not disappoint you. I'll pee in a cup every day, I'll do whatever it takes to get this job. And so after them reviewing my court documents and talking to HR, I was hired, I was given that chance to pay it forward and train other people. And I, I'm forever grateful for that opportunity that the, the Wellness Center, the Maryland Athletic Club it was called gave me. And I, it became a new high for me, Scott, helping other people set and achieve their goals through fitness and being able to relate to them on a deeper level, because a lot of the emotional, mental pain that people have when trying to uh, reach their fitness goals, I had had, I'd been depressed. I'd been uncomfortable with who I was. I had tried to fit in. I used food to numb my pain. I turned to drugs. I'd done all these things so I could relate to them at a different level than a lot of other trainers who hadn't been in my shoes could. And I was thankful that I built a really successful training business at the wellness center and time flew by and I end up there's a, a couple people, though, throughout that journey that, that really helped me. Number one was one of my best friends to this day, Billy, who was a trainer at the club, who I, I saw the value of mentors after Eric in jail. I was like, all right, clearly this mentor thing or having somebody in your life that to help push you helps. So I sought out this guy, Billy, that I really aligned with, who was a trainer at the Mac, which is short for Maryland Athletic Club, as we called it. Who had a successful training business, and so I was like, "Hey, dude, how'd you do it?" And he had taught me, you know, all his tips and tricks, and I, I really followed it to a T. And we built a relationship, and he was very meaningful in that. And then there was a lady named Maria, who worked there, who I started training, who played a different role in my life because at the time my relationship with my parents was still very strained. My mom and I had a we we hardly spent time together because, you know, she had a tough time, I think, forgiving me. It took her a long longer time which i mean that's that was her journey and i can't shame her for that i mean her and i have a great relationship now but i i still needed that mother figure in my life so maria was this this woman that worked there and and she would invite me over to like the holidays and invite me over for thanksgiving and i remember feeling really awkward when she first asked me so i was like man i feel weird like i don't i should be with my family why am i doing this am i gonna look like an outcast and i just remember going there for Thanksgiving, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I finally felt at peace. I felt loved. I felt unconditionally supported for the first time in a long time. And, and granted, now I spend the holidays with my, with my family. But back then, I, that's what I needed. I needed someone to show me that unconditional love as a mother figure. And we built a really good relationship. I would go on family vacations with them. I even trained one of her daughters and helped her lose a bunch of weight that that changed a lot in their family. And I'm forever grateful for, for her and so many other people that helped me along the way, including the owners of the Mac that gave me that chance and and also became mentors of mine as well.
0: Doug, I'm mindful of our time. I have a couple of final questions for you. Talk a bit about your podcast. Uh, What's the theme and where can people subscribe to it?
1: Yeah, so the podcast is called The Adversity Advantage, where I help other people uh, use dark times to come into light because I think what happens is when we face trials and tribulations, the way we respond actually is what makes the situation much worse than the situation itself. So I interview people from all walks of life on how they've gotten through hard times and exactly how they've done it. And I also bring in different experts from different fields who provide more, you know, granular and tactical um, methods to do that. And I love it, man. I love paying forward. Uh, not, not just sharing my message, but the, the message of others to to help people um, become better versions of themselves.
0: Doug, again, you don't portray yourself as an expert mental health therapist. You are not an expert in addictions, with the exception of you have expert experience in both of those. Let's talk to some of the different constituencies that are watching and listening today. Let's talk about parents that perhaps have a son or a daughter who's had a difficult challenge with uh, mental health or perhaps substance abuse, and at lots of points in marriages, you'll have one parent who just like gives up or they decide that tough love is the only option and the other parent recognizes that, but they just can't give up on their child and perhaps they're seen as an enabler. What, what advice would you give to parents, married or otherwise, that are struggling with this, this, this conundrum of enablement and never abandoning their child? You see it in marriages and it's a real struggle. What, what advice would you give people that are at that, um, that, in that conundrum?
1: Well, first and foremost, I, yeah, I'm, not a, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a m- mental health expert. I just speak from my own experience, both as the kid um, who did drugs and also from my own journey and everything I've seen through it. And I would say, number one, the, the number one mistake that I think parrots make is there's a big sense of shame and stigma around the fact that they have a child who's struggling with addiction. And I can't emphasize enough just raising your hand and speaking up and joining a support group. To with other people that are in the situation to help bounce ideas off of and feel connected to. Also make sure you're taking care of yourself because I think it causes an immense amount of emotional and mental stress when you're dealing with something like that. So make sure that you are honoring yourself in that. And as far as the, the kid itself, like just know that they're struggling, they're hurting. So just know that, you know, just love them no matter what. It doesn't mean you have to enable them by constantly giving them money, but just in the way you show up for them, just const- just let them know and remind them how much you love them, no matter what, through the situation. And also just having some firm boundaries and just knowing that sometimes it's up to them to make the choice to change. Like a lot of times the parents want to enable them and, and hoping that they'll get better because they're helping them so much. But in reality, the person who's struggling with addiction is the person that needs to make the choice to say enough is enough. And I need to change. And just the, the big question, though, that I think is 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 vital is not look at the fact that the fact that you, their kids are doing drugs, like ask them why, like get to the root cause of why, because there's a lot of underlying issues and reasons why a lot of kids turn to drugs. I mean, for me, like I said, insecurities, trying to fit in, stress, anxiety, pain, trauma. That was, um, if you ripped the the bandaid off, that was what was underneath the bandaid and was, was deep rooted inside of me.
0: Doug, we're taping this interview in the beginning of 2021. We're still very much in the midst of the pandemic. The vaccine is just barely starting now to be distributed around the nation to the more you know, uh, more vulnerable groups. The mass population doesn't have this. There's no question that depression, suicide, anxiety, substance abuse is as high as it's ever been and perhaps increasing, especially with the legalization of certain types of gr- drugs around the nation, I don't mean to opine on that. For the people who are watching and listening who might be struggling with these issues in their own life, perhaps it is an increasing substance abuse issue or perhaps an ongoing issue and they're not certain how to get help. They're not sure what to do next. What counsel would you give people who were perhaps maybe older than you were, they're not 14, they're 24, 34, 44 or older that are struggling with this in their own life Give them a path forward.
1: So number one is acceptance. I think one of the biggest things that keeps people from actually getting help or changing is that they feel that they're alone and that they're a piece going to be a piece of garbage for the rest of their life or whatever. However they're feeling, and just know that it's okay, right? But what's not okay is continuing to stay in that same you know dark place, that rut. So ask for help. Like put, your, raise your hand. Like think of somebody who you highly respect that's really close to you, a mentor, a friend, and just be vulnerable, open up. And and as hard as that may sound, what's also hard is sitting on your couch in misery and feeling sorry for yourself and still struggling for the rest of your life. So ask for help. And then also think about things you can do to make yourself feel better, right? Because remember, every decision or choice we make is going to impact how we feel. So maybe it's committing to going for a walk two, three days a week. Maybe it's doing push-ups. Maybe it's joining a gym. Maybe it's you know, finding joining an online support group, whatever it is, just make sure you're doing things that are gonna help your elevate your mood and help you feel better. And then also know that it take just take one step at a time. I think so many people they're like when they're trying to get into recovery or trying to make some sort of massive transformation, they're looking so far ahead. Well, how am I gonna lose this 50 pounds or how am I going to get 10 years in recovery or how am I gonna do this? It just starts with one step. So just do whatever you can and be relentless about becoming a better version of yourself. That one day, call that mentor, move your body, eat smart, stay hydrated, listen to podcasts, journal, write your feelings down, win that one day, then move on to the second day, the third day, the fourth day, and so on.
0: Doug Bobes, this conversation has been a gift to countless people. Your book is From Felony to Fitness to Fire. I mentioned it's a small small but treasured uh, uh, recap of your journey. The tagline is, everyone deserves A second chance. Are you going to make the most of yours? Your podcast is the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Doug, your last name is spelled B-O-P-S-T in case people want to Google you, Google you, learn more about your fitness coaching, your mentorship programs. Thank you for joining us today on Leadership.
1: Scott, thanks for having me. And the one last thing I will say is the felony conviction did end up coming off my record. I ended up completing all the stipulations the judge gave me and he granted me my second chance in court took the felony conviction off my record, and then it actually got completely expunged in September of 2020.
0: Well said, thanks for sharing that, Doug. Such an honor to have you amongst all of our On Leadership uh, podcast guests. I have no doubt this will be one of the most highly rated listened to across the entire series because your journey is like that of countless millions. Thank you again for your time, for your courage, and for your selflessness to share your story. Thank you again.
1: Thanks for having me, Scott.
0: And if any of you are struggling with any of these issues, again, I'm not a therapist as well. I have very low experience on the journey that Doug has taken. But if you want to reach out, gosh, connect to me, Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube. Send me a message if I can help you get some help or help connect you with Doug or anybody else that's in a position to help solve problems that you have or your family has Although this is not Franklin Covey's business, we are your friend. We're delighted that you're listening to us. You can read our books. You can visit our website. We have dozens of complimentary podcasts, webcasts on leadership development, uh, the principles behind living an effective life. We'd love to be a partner with you and your organization. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you back here for a new interview on leadership.